While the kids are leaving, I just want to, again, restate, I loved what Megan shared this morning. And a number of weeks ago when we were here, we were talking about opening up the opportunities for people just to share what's on their heart, what God's placed in their heart, that we don't want it to be so structured that we don't leave room for the Holy Spirit. And so I thought what Megan got up here was a word of prophecy that she shared. It was a word from Father to us. And I really want to encourage you, if you feel led at any point during the service, like you don't have to be planned. Maybe it is planned. Maybe it's just something that God puts on your heart during the worship or, or during while someone's speaking. If there's something on your heart that you want to share. Uh, that's what this mic up here is for. Just come see uh, either myself or Greg or uh, Josh or Robin, if Greg and I are not available, and, and just kind of share with us that you have something to share, and, and we'll definitely make it possible so that you can share. So I just thought that was so encouraging. Did you not also find that encouraging? All right. Well, we're going to continue on now in our, uh, our study through the book of Ephesians. And I remember when I, when I first started in the ministry, I was trying to devour as much as I could about New Covenant teaching. I would read the books. I was listening to sermons online. And I was doing all kinds of, you know, reading, studying the Bible and, and looking up, you know, the, the words and trying to get into as deep as I could to understand that. And so I was really excited one time when one of these teachers was coming to town to, to host a conference. And so I went down and was listening to this teaching. It was a great teacher. The teaching was great. And then he, he came across and he, he shared something that was very clever, very witty, and, and it rhymed and everything, but it felt as deep as a puddle because it was that cliche, right? That, that sounds good, sounds clever, but really just is so hollow and empty when you kind of begin to look at it. And, and it wasn't what he was sharing was the problem. It, it's not that that lacked power. What he was sharing was true. It was about grace and our union with Jesus. But just the way he phrased it, the way he shared it, and the way it came across, it just felt so empty. And, and I thought about, you know, what would it be like if I were to share that with someone who's hurting? Someone one-on-one -on -one who's going through a difficult time. If I were to share that clever, witty phrase, they would probably be offended. It would probably feel like, you know, I've just poured cold water on them in the middle of December. And they might, you know, get up and slap me because it was so offensive, because it was so trite. It was so empty. And so I remember thinking that moment, I don't want to do that. I don't want to come across as so, you know, clever and smart, but, but empty. I want to have depth to what I share. And I thought, you know, if I can't use this one-on-one -on -one with someone, then I probably shouldn't be teaching in front of a group. And so I really tried to avoid the cliches. But, but here's the problem. With those cliches, with those clever, witty phrases, they're so rememberable. And when you're teaching, one of the top things you want to be able to do is give them something they remember. Amen? And so that's why those cliches are so attractive, because they, maybe they rhyme or they sound smart and so forth. And so really, I thought more about it. And I thought, you know, really, the ideal is to have something that does sound smart, is easy to remember, and is able to uh, also have depth, also to transform and, and really change people's thinking in their hearts. Well, this past, a couple weeks ago, when, when John and Tracy um, Levinson, John Lynch and Tracy Levinson were up here in this area, I was able to hear some of them and, and listen to what they were sharing. And, and John shared this one phrase that has stuck with me ever since. It's a little simple phrase. Trust, or sorry, truth, trusted, transforms. I thought that's a great phrase. Truth, trusted, transforms. 
And, and, and I got thinking about that and that all the power and the depth to that. The truth of, of God's word, of, of who we are and who he is. That truth, if it's, if it's trusted, if it's relied upon, if we place our faith in that, then that allows the opportunity for transformation to happen from the inside out. And then, then I got thinking about really this morning and, and every time we kind of gather as a group, what is, what is it we're trying to do? Well, we're trying to convey truth whether that be through the songs, whether that be through, uh, the, through the message, whether that even just be one-on-one -on -one as we're encouraging one another, whether that be a, a word of, of prophecy that God's placed in your heart to share with a group. We're trying to share and, and uh, convince one another of the truth of who God is in his word and who, who we are in him. And so that's sort of what we're doing right now. My job is to share the truth with you this morning. But then it's your job now to take that truth and trust it to rely upon it, to believe on this truth. And that provides God the opportunity to provide that transformation for that opportunity to, to change how we see ourselves, see God, and even how we interact with one another. And so I think that's what makes this passage really so special. This passage here in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, really to the end of 14, has been called the, the treasure chest of the New Testament meaning that there's so many gifts and so many treasures. One man has likened this, this passage to like Christmas morning, where you get all these gifts, you get to unwrap all these gifts and discover what belongs to you. And so in many ways, what Paul has done is he's wrapped up all these gifts and now we're getting to open them in these verses here. Now, we're not going to look at all the verses from verse 3 to 14. We're only going to look at a fraction of them this morning, verses 3 to 6. But uh, let's read that passage and uh, let's begin to open up some of these gifts that God's given to us. So beginning in verse 3, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we open up this treasure chest and we begin to see all that you've done for us, would you begin to open our eyes? Would your Holy Spirit be the teacher to convince us of what's true? What is the truth of you and what you've done and who we are today? And, and may we then begin to rely upon that truth. May we place our faith and our dependence in that truth so that we could experience this transformation where we get to walk and live in life in you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Notice there in verse 3 that there's some word repetition here, right? Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The word here in the Greek for blessing or bless is the word that we, use, we get the word eulogy from. And it, eulogy means to speak well of, to praise. And so really what Paul's saying is he opens up, blessed be God, praise be God, that God is worthy and deserving of our praise. And then he's going to explain why. Well, why is God so worthy of this praise? Why is he so worthy of, of our love and our adoration? Because he has blessed us. Because he has loved on us. He is gentle towards us. And he has blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. 
And so he's, he's sharing with us that we have everything we need. Notice the tense there. It's not that he is blessing us, but that he has blessed us. So Mike, what tense is blessed? Past, present, or future? Past tense. That's why he's in the front row, right? So it's the past tense, meaning it's already happened. It's a done deal. There's no more to come. We already have everything we need in the person of Jesus Christ. But, you know, when I think about that, in my own life at least, then I start to wonder, well, why don't I always experience that? Why do, I, why do I struggle? Because often I think I need more. Sometimes I think I just need more time. I just don't have enough time to, to get everything I want to get done in that day. And, and so I get, I get frustrated and I just begin to feel like I'm falling further and further behind. And I feel like I'm disappointing and I'm letting everyone else down because I'm not able to do all that I, I wanted to do and, and I'm hoping to do for these people. Or maybe I, I just feel like I don't have enough strength. Come home at the end of the day and I'm tired and I don't feel like I have enough to now to offer my family. And so now I feel like my family's missing out on the best of me and, and I feel like I'm letting them down and, and they're missing out so much. Or other times I just don't feel like I have enough self-control. And so because I'm feeling fatigued and because I'm feeling disappointed in myself and I'm frustrated, then I'm just looking for an escape. I'm looking for an out. And so I, I can't say no to the snacks. I can't say no to turning on Netflix and watching another episode or another show. And I just, I just feel like I'm, I'm just tired and overwhelmed by all of that. And, and I think the reason that I'm struggling, I think the reason that we all struggle in those moments is that either we don't know or we've forgotten or we're just not believing in that moment that what Jesus has done and who he is is enough, that we have what we need in him. And so because I, I've forgotten or I don't know or I'm not trusting in that moment, my attention is drawn from Jesus and it's placed onto the circumstances. It's placed onto the circumstances of what I'm going through in that, in that moment. And so I think Paul understands that. And so what he's going to do is he's going to help us draw our attention away from the circumstances, away from the struggles or what we're worried about or, or what's occupying our mind and simplifying it and bringing it back to Jesus. And so he's going to share now what some of these, these incredible blessings are. But before we can look at those blessings, there's a little phrase right at the end of verse three that it'd be so easy for us to pass over and yet is so powerful. It's just two words, in Christ. Two words, two simple words, but really what drives everything. It's all about our union with Jesus Christ. What's interesting in beginning in verse three to the end of verse 14, there's 12 verses there, 11 times in those 12 verses, in Christ or in him or in Jesus, some kind of, of combination of that appears 11 times. 11 times in 12 verses, this phrase is repeated over and over and over again. So I think Paul understood how easy it would be for us to slip past it and not even pay attention to it. So he's constantly bringing us back to this truth, this incredible truth that we're in Jesus, that we're one with him. That really what he's speaking to is this idea that we've been united with Jesus. You see, that's so critical because I hear people all the time when they're praying, they pray things like, Lord, will you come be with us today? And we, we call you down, Lord Jesus. 
or, or Lord, you know, draw yourself closer to me and draw myself closer to you. And, and so we have this idea that, that Jesus is somewhere beyond our grasp. And the reality is he's in us right now. We're in him right now. We're so close, we've been made one with him. And so there's this old hymn that I've always loved. <clears throat> this, this one little phrase, it says, near, near to God I cannot be. For in the person of his son, I am as near as he. You can't get closer to Jesus. You don't have to ask him to come be with you. <clears throat> you don't have to try to, you know, how do I get him closer to me? It's realizing that I'm in him right now, that I'm with him right now. And because of that, because of this union with Jesus, I have all these treasures, all these gifts that Paul's going to list. So let's start to unwrap some of these gifts, beginning in verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. As I get older, I'm, I'm realizing how easy it is to, to fall into the trap of looking at the, the following generation or generations that are coming after me and, and begin to look down upon them, begin to, to talk negatively about them. I remember growing up, I would always hear the adults, the older people would say things like this to me. Oh, you kids, you've got it so easy. When I was your age, we had to walk to school uphill both ways, right? Anyone else have those parents say that? And, and in the snow in the middle of June, right? So, I mean, it was always this horrific, horrible, and it was like, you guys have it so much easier. And there's this, it's easy to fall into the trap that an older generation looks down and talks negatively of the ones coming after us. And I think it's easy for us, right? I'm, I'm part of the, the Gen X generation, and it's easy for me maybe to look down at the next ones, right? The, the, the millennials or the Gen Y or the one even after that, the Gen Z, or some are calling them the iGen. Maybe that's a bit of a take off the iPhone or the selfie and that sort of idea. But it'd be easy for me to look down on them and say, oh, these, these people, they're now so selfish, so self-centered, narcissistic, and so forth. But that's not my heart. That's not what I want to say. But I do think our culture is crying out to us. Our culture is revealing something to us. If we would have just ears to hear, we could hear their struggle. I mean, it, I hear adults go, why are these kids, why are they posting everything about their whole lives on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook? Do I really need to know what they're eating that day, right? Do I really need to know that, you know, they've had so many glasses of water and why do I need to see all these selfies and so forth of them? And it'd be easy to come away with a negative attitude. But really, I think what this, this generation is saying, and it's really kind of bled into all of the generations, is this idea of people saying, do you see me? Will you look at me? One of the things that I've kind of learned is that if you want to get to know the heart of maybe what a culture or a generation saying, you, you kind of look at their, their songwriters because those poets are, are really trying to tap into the heart of what's happening. And so let me just kind of quote to you some lyrics of a song. The, the lyrics go this, I'm in here, can anybody see me? Can anybody help? Can't you hear my call? Are you coming to get me now? I've been waiting for you to come rescue me. I need you to hold all of the sadness I cannot living inside of me. I'm in here. I'm trying to tell you something. I'm crying out. 
I'm breaking down and I'm fearing it all. Stuck inside these walls, tell me there is hope for me. Is anybody out there listening? If we could just pause and look around, you will see people crying out, do you see me? Do I matter? Am I important? Do I count? And, and the problem is that, you know, there are so many people now doing that, it, it almost gets lost. And all the selfies and all the, the, the posts about what their lives and what's going on, we almost lose track of, you know, individuals. And sort of like how New York City, one of the biggest cities in the world, the biggest in North America, is often referred to as the lonely, loneliest city. You're surrounded by people, <clears throat> but you blend in to the point where you become a nobody. And so all these people are crying out, but since everybody's crying out, nobody can receive that attention. Nobody can have people say, I see you. And I totally get that. That's how I feel so often. You know, <clears throat> I am so lucky to be married to, to Joy. She is, she's so patient and understanding with me. See, I think for me, I, I like to consider for the most part, I'm a pretty low-key guy. I think for the most part, I'm low maintenance. That I, again, for the most part, things just kind of roll off my back. And I think for the most part, I have thick skin. At least that's what I like to think about myself. But the truth be told, sometimes, and probably more times than I like to admit, that's not the case. There are times where something will happen. And, and it's not really a big thing. It's just something, just a little thing It happens. And it seems to get past all my defenses. It get past everything. And it just cuts me deep. And it, and it hurts. And I think, does anybody actually notice me? Does anyone actually see me? Do I matter to anyone? And it just, it just hurts. And, and so what ends up happening is at this moment, I get, the best way I can describe it is I get weird. I just weird out. I just, I get awkward around people, especially with around joy. I just start to retreat. I start to withdraw. I start to pull in. I get grumpy. I'm on edge. And, and so in that moment, I'm just struggling. And it's in that moment where, where joy comes to my rescue. She reaches out in some way, whether through, through a you know, touch sitting beside me or words, and she just starts to draw me out because basically what she's saying is, I see you're struggling. Or more importantly, I see you. I see what's happening. And maybe she says some things to, to encourage me, to build me up, to, to just remind me that what I'm doing matters, that she recognizes that. And I begin to, I begin to feel safer. And that wound and that hurt that I've been multiplying in my mind over and over again suddenly begins to shrink and get smaller. And I gain perspective and I'm back to being me again. But it, it took someone to say, I see you. And I think that's what, that's what God is trying to say to us in this passage. This idea that God chose us. It's interesting how that word, it, it spawns all kinds of a theological debate. 
And it's, it's coupled to another word later on, this word predestination about how God, did God choose some to be saved and he didn't choose others and, and all kinds of debate around that, what that means. And, and I think what ends up happening is we completely miss the point. I think that whole debate, that whole argument is simply a distraction of the enemy to prevent us from seeing what God's really trying to communicate in all this. You think about it. I choose you. Think about going to the grocery store and, uh, and you're, you're walking up the, the produce uh, aisle and you, you see some peppers and you think, well, I need, I need four peppers. I need two green, one red and one orange. Well, do you just sort of go, okay, what do I got here? Close my eyes and put it in the bag and let's find out when we get home. Is that what you do? No. What do you do? You, you pick up the pepper and you look at it and you inspect it and you look it around and say, oh yeah, that feels good. That, I, that's got the right color. And you put it in your bag. So there's an aspect of, in, of inspecting that allows you to know it in order to choose it. And so what is God doing? Well, God didn't, didn't save mankind with, you know, in terms of like buying a mystery bag of people and then going back to heaven and opening up the bag and see, what did I get? I got a cure. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. I got a Richard. That's a good one. I got a, no, I got a norm. All right. I got a norm. All right. But you know, I'm, this is great. And then, and he gets, you know, that's not what he's doing. Right. He, he looks at you and he, he knows all about you. And he says, I, I got a Megan. And he knows all about Megan and her story and her past and her future. He knows her thoughts and her struggles. He knows what she's done and what's been done to her. She knows all those failures, all those disappointments, all those hurts. She knows the pain and the sorrow. And he says, this is who I want. I choose her. And so what, with this idea of God choosing us, he says, I see you. Because I see you and I know you, I want you. And so what I want us to see is what the God who sees us, what he does as a result. It's not enough that he sees you over there. He actually, because he sees you, he's motivated to do something. And what he does begins is he begins to restore us. So it goes on to say that he's made, he chose us in order that before the foundation of the world, before you've done anything, so it is independent of your actions, he has made you holy and blameless. Now, this is really important here. The, the language in the Greek, it, it allows for us to know whether or not the, the writer is giving us an instruction or if he's telling us a fact. And in this passage here, Paul is not giving you and I an instruction. He's not commanding us, now go and be holy and be blameless. That's not what he's saying. He's telling us a fact. Because of what God has done, because of his blessing, because you and I are in Christ, because he saw you and he chose you, he has now made you holy and blameless. You see, you have to understand there's no degrees to holiness. It, it's sort of like pregnancy, right? Either you are or you're not. You're not sort of pregnant at any point in time. Right? There are no degrees of pregnancy. Either you are or you're not. And if you are, you're all in pregnant. Well, in the same way, with holiness, there aren't degrees of holiness. 
There isn't, you know, you know, you know, Mother Teresa and Billy Graham over here. And, and then, you know, we got Marco and Janice over here. And, and then we got Chuck over here, you know, poor Chuck. So, so there aren't degrees of holiness. It's just if you're holy, you're holy. You're all the way holy because he's the one that did it. And not only are you holy, but you're blameless. Another way we could translate that would be without fault. Let that sink in. That you are without fault. That you're flawless. And I know if you're like me, you're thinking, oh, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's happened to me. You don't know my story, my past. And my simple answer is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because of those two powerful words that are repeated 11 times in these 12 verses in Christ union with Christ one with Christ he is the basis the rock the foundation the reason why we are holy and blameless and because of that now in love he's predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In love, look what he's done. Look what motivates him. It, again, it's not about what you've offered to him. It's not based on your sacrifice. It's not based on anything you've done or not done. It's all based on the love and the strength of God. And so he's motivated by his desire for us and for our best. And so he shows us grace. He desires, it's freely bestowed that we are holy and blameless. But this idea here of his kind intention. He, he not only loves you, he not only shows you and I grace, but he actually wants to. Sometimes I think we fall into the trap where we feel like God is now obligated to. He's kind of stuck to do so. But you know what gives God great joy and great glory? Loving on his kids. Showing them grace. It's what he longs to do, what he desires to do. He's not forced or obligated in any way. It's his heart's desire to show grace to you and I. Well, let's look at this word here that has caused so much uh, complication with a lot of people, this idea of predestination. And again, it's, it's spawned for the last 500 years. Could you believe that? 500 years now, we've been arguing and debating this idea of predestination. Did God predestine, choose some to be saved, some to go to heaven, and did he choose and predestine some to go to hell? Well, for God so loved the world, right? God's desire is that none shall perish. Here's the thing. This word predestined has caused all kinds of stumbles for people. And it's because of what we bring into the passage when we read the word predestination or predestined. See, you got to keep reading. The question you have to ask yourself is predestined to what? And there's no no concept or no idea here of predestined to salvation in this passage. It's not what he's talking about. See, the word predestined just means that there is a plan from the beginning. And if you think about it, God, the moment you and I were saved, God had a plan for us. 
You and I have been predestined. And there's, there's six times in the New Testament where we are predestined to certain things. Romans 8 talks about how we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. This passage here says that you and I are predestined to the adoption as sons. But here's our problem. When you hear the word adoption, you probably, my guess is you think of it adoption from a 21st century perspective. But Paul didn't live and write to a 21st century audience. He lived and wrote to a first century audience. In the first century, they looked at adoption very differently than how we look at adoption. See, we treat adoption this way, that somebody who was born outside of a family and, and therefore has no connection to that family, when they are adopted, they enter into the family. And so maybe they, they gain some things. Maybe they gain a new last name. They'll gain a new home and they'll, they'll gain parents that love them and they'll gain parents that care for them and provide for them. And maybe they'll, they'll have a new country if they come from afar or maybe a new school and, and a new environment. And they gain all kinds of things in that adoption. But the one thing that doesn't change is their nature. See, when you're adopted, you'll never gain the DNA of your parents. And, and not all, but I know a lot of people who are adopted, they grow up and they never, ever feel secure. They never feel like they fully belong. They always feel like they're close, but not quite. Just a bit of an outsider. Because there's always something different about me. That's not the adoption that God's talking about here. Think about it. How did you and I become children of God? You weren't from born outside the family and then joined his family. You and I were born again. First John 5, 1 explains that idea that you and I have been born into the family of God. We are born again. What that means is you are born with a brand new DNA, a brand new life. And so we are actually partakers of the na very nature, the very life, the quote unquote DNA of God flowing through us. So you don't need to be adopted into the family of God. You're born into the family of God. So what does he mean here when he talks about adoption? Well, we have to understand a bit of the culture in first century Roman world. They had something called the, the toga virilis. Isn't that a fun word to say, right? You all know what a toga is? Right? Virilis is where we get the word virility from. Really what it is, it is a moment of manhood. You see, what would happen is a, a, a rich owner, a rich man, when he'd have a son, he wouldn't actually look after that son when he was, you know, growing up. He would hire someone or have a slave to do that. Maybe a nanny or a governess or something like that. In, back in that day, they called them a pedagogos. And it was a job of this slave to look after and really kind of raise this, this child. Now, the problem would be, though, is that the slave is sort of very low on the totem pole. And could you imagine a six-year-old thinking, wait a minute, I'm in charge. And then you have to listen to me. And now a six-year-old is in charge of the place. Is that a wise? Parents, is that wise? No, not wise. So what they would do is, as that six-year-old, he would actually be under the authority of a slave. So the slave had authority over the son of the master. And that would happen until he would reach adulthood. 
And now he's a man. And, and maybe it changed. Maybe it was 12, 15, 16, 15 sort of age. Maybe it was a bit older in their 20s. I don't know if there was a particular age where it all happened. But there was a moment where the father would look at his son and say, OK, now you've graduated. You're no longer this little child under the slave. Now you graduate and you now inherit and obtain full authority and all rights of being my child. And that was the adoption that would take place. So you would adopt your own son. That's how it would work. So you're not inviting someone outside the family into the family. You're adopting the one that's already in your family. Essentially, I, I'm graduating you to full adulthood. We have this in some forms today, right? We have that in the, the sweet 16 party for girls they used to have or, or bar mitzvahs for the Jewish friends that we have, right? It's that recognition of adulthood. Well, that's what this adoption was. And so this adoption as sons. But we have to dig a little bit deeper. What does he mean? What does this graduation look like? Well, if you find another passage in Romans 8 and verse 23, Paul writes this. He says, and not only this, also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons. There's that phrase again, but now he completes it. The redemption of our body. You see, he's talking about this adoption in the future tense, not past tense. That's our salvation was past tense. This future tense, this future adoption we look forward to is when you and I exit this earth suit and we are transformed and we receive a new body. I think what Paul's trying to lay, uh, let hold, let, uh, help us lay hold of, he's reminding us is because we are in Christ, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the size of your home, the, the size of your bank account, the, the trips you go on, the adventures you experience. This is, this is just a, a blink of an eye. We have something far greater and we are going to graduate and we are going to experience great reward because this, this God who loves you, this God who's restored you, this God who shows grace to you, who longs to show grace to you, the God who sees you, accepts you. And that's the adoption of sons. So let me illustrate to you this way with a, a rather famous parable. It's the, the, probably maybe the most famous parable that Jesus told, the, the one of the prodigal son. And it's really not about the son. It was really about the father. God, Jesus was trying to explain to us who God is and the nature of God, the heart of God through showing us the heart of this father. But let's kind of recap the story of at least of the prodigal son, the younger son, right? He, he asked for his inheritance early. And once he got it, he goes off to the far country and he blows it, right? He goes and he spends all this money on, on you know, parties and food and girls and friends and probably line dancing, right? All kinds of sinful things he's doing. And he's having a grand old time until all that money runs out. And when the money runs out, he offers himself, he sells himself to a slave owner out there. And he's now working for that slave, looking after pigs. And he's thinking, man, life would be better if I were a servant at home. And not just a servant, but a migrant worker, just someone who comes from time to time and gets a job when the harvest is too plentiful and they need extra hands. That's how bad he was off. And so he makes his way home, but it's not really home anymore. He figures he's forfeited. He figures he's lost it. And it says, while he was a long way off, what did the father do? The father saw him. Now, think with me a little bit here. 
This, this young man, when he first left, he would have left in his prime. I mean, he would have been strong and healthy and, and you know, wearing great expensive clothing and, and you know, beard trimmed, hair all neat and tidy. And, and he would have left looking great. But now he's off in the far country and he's been living a hard life and he's been struggling and he's running out of money and he's not eating anymore. So you can imagine now how much weight he's lost and gone are the fancy clothes. Now he's just wearing rags and they're dirty and, and his hair is probably not kept. And so it's a wild mess and greasy and, and, and the beard is, a, is a probably a wild mane at this point. And he's probably looking very gaunt and very thin. And yet, when the father sees this very different looking son, he knows right away who that is. What does that tell us? That even though the appearance has changed, the father knows the son so intimately that he knows from a great distance, that's who my son is. I don't know if he had the family nose, family eyes. Maybe he just recognized them from how he walked. That's my boy. That's my son. And the only way to recognize him at such a distance is if he knew so much about him before he left. And so the moment he sees him, this older man, he hikes up his, his, his uh, cloak and he bolts. He runs to him. And the, the King James says he fell on him. Another translation says, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him. Jeremy, let me demonstrate. <laughs> this idea here, he's so excited to see his boy. And immediately, what is this God who saw? What does he do? He restores. He restores to him everything that he's lost immediately. Right? He doesn't listen to the speech. He immediately says, no, 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 let's not, don't even say anything anymore. Quiet. And he restores to him. He puts this robe on him to denote that you're a son. And he puts sandals on him so that he says, you're not a slave. You don't have to work for this. He even gives him the, the family ring, which would be akin to giving him the family credit card. Access to all the accounts. Access to go forward in the father's name. He says, you're my son. No questions about it. Immediately he restores this one who smells. I mean, think about it. This idea, he's sturdy and he's smelly and he's like embracing him. He doesn't care how messy he is. He's the God that accepts. He throws a celebration, this party for him because he's so excited about the son who is lost has returned home. Well, let's apply that to you and I. But let's, let's start with where we, where we started, or let's go back to where we started with this morning, with those three words. Truth, trusted, transforms. Say it with me. Truth, trusted, transforms. One more time. Truth, trusted, transforms. What's the truth that God's wanting to say to us this morning? He says, I see you. I know all about your story. I know where you've been. And maybe, maybe you're just coming from the far country. 
Maybe you're still in the far country. Maybe you still got the stench of the far country on you. Maybe you're covered in filth. Or, or maybe you've come, and, but you just can't seem to scrub it off, that filth. And God says, I see you. And I have embraced you, odor and all. I don't care about your mess. I don't care about your dirt. I don't care about what you've done and who you did it with and how many times you did it. I love you. I redeem you. I've restored you. I have made you holy and blameless. Without fault, you're flawless. You're as perfect as perfect can be. That's the truth of who you are. That's the truth of what God has done. And so what's our natural response? To trust that. To rely upon that truth. To place our faith upon that truth. Especially in those moments when we get weird. When we get awkward. When we want to retreat and pull away. Say, no God, this is true of who you are. This is true of who I am. And I don't feel it right now. But I'm going to trust it. And I'm going to step out in faith in that. Allowing God to transform, transform how we see ourselves, transform our thinking, transform our mind, and transform our interactions and our relationships with those around us. Truth, trusted, transforms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees us, a God that that knows everything about us, a God that has inspected us, every detail, right down to the number of hairs on our head, the thoughts we have, our past, our future, our desires, our heart. You've searched it all and you've chosen us and you've made us holy and blameless. You made us one with your son, Jesus Christ. You've redeemed us. May we have the courage to trust that to be true. In your name we pray, amen.